Our reading today is Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then will I ever sing praise to your name and fulfill my vows day after day. This is God's word. And let me say uh, a warm welcome to you if you are visiting this morning. I know there are a number of visitors. You're very warmly welcome. You join us in the middle of a little series in uh, the second book of the Psalms, Psalm 60 to 63, entitled The Songs of the King. We started with Psalm 60 last week and uh, this week, Psalm 61. And I pray as we start. Our Father God, we've already spoken and sung of you as the God of refuge, and we pray that we would know uh, what that means, uh, not just for your king, but for us as your people. And we pray that you would strengthen us by your words, by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this psalm is uh, it's all about a journey. It's all about a journey from faintness to firmness, from uh, faintness at the edge of the world, at the edge of life itself, to firmness at the very center of the world, its most secure hub. And it's a, it's a journey we ought to be interested in because actually it begins with the great problem of Christian experience which is that we're supposed to be victors, but actually the Christian life feels more like we're victims. The great mismatch, is it not, of the believer's experience is that we're loaded up with all the promises of uh, inheriting and ruling God's new world, but with none of the experience of doing it. I mean, there was an evidence of it really in our prayers a few moments ago. We ought to be victors, and it feels more like we're victims. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, We're future co-heirs with Christ, ruling the new world. We're supposed to be the victors of history, and yet it feels that for every Christian you know, you know of a real difficult hardship, an intransigent problem that won't go away. For every church, you could list lots of examples of faintness. It can feel, can't it, that uh, the Christian church and Christians are a bit like underachieving children. Lots has been promised about us, but actually the ground-level reality is very different only growing more faint in heart. And maybe this has been a surprise for you if, uh, if you've recently become a Christian. Uh, after the initial euphoria has worn off, as you've begun to get to know Christians and indeed your own life, um, you've discovered actually that Christians are people dogged with difficulties, problems that don't seem to go away. And the church doesn't appear to be the firm place the Bible speaks of. If you've... Uh, If you've undertaken any spiritual responsibility for others, maybe you've become a small group leader. Maybe you've joined together to pray with some other Christians. And again and again, you've discovered that for every Christian, there is a real difficult hardship. 
One that minister friends told me a few years ago of his experience taking up his first post in a church and person by person came up to him and opened up all about their great struggles and sufferings. And it was like the people of God, the suffering people of God, coming out of the woodwork. Well, it seems as though the promise for the Christian church is firmness, but her experience is faintness. And so we need to hear this psalm today, for it begins with faintness and it ends with firmness. On the back of your service sheets, there should be a little outline. And I've shown there how I think this psalm divides, verses 1 to 2, end of 2 to 4, 5 to 7, and then finally verse 8. Well, let's come to verses 1 to 2, because we discover there that the problem is actually worse than we thought. It's the faint king who cries out. Verse 1, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. But actually before verse 1, the, the superscription, the little title, it's part of the text of the psalm. It says, for the director of music with stringed instruments of David. Of David, this is by or about David. The problem is greater than we thought because the, the eye of verse 1, the one who prays, the one who cries out, is none other than the king, the Davidic king. This is uh, seen in the rest of the psalm in verse 5. This is the person who receives the heritage of those who fear God's name. He has all God's people in his hands. This is the king. So verse 6, prolong the life, who, of the king. So it's the king who prays in verse 1, and that means it's the king who is faint in verse 2. And do you see that verse 2, that cry is a cry of desperation from a place of weakness. From the ends of the earth I call to you. That is to say, I feel so acutely that I am far from your presence, gods. I am far from your protection, so as to be on the edge of the world, on the edge of life itself. A cry from the edge of the world is a cry from fragility and faintness. But yet David, the king, this king, is the one loaded up with all the promises of God, all the promises of inheriting God's words. So on his shoulders, in a sense, even though he's not on the throne, King David, if you remember, for 20 years he's wandering, a fugitive. His life is sought out by Saul, the actual king on the throne. David's the anointed, but he's a fugitive, not on the throne. And yet he has those promises from 2 Samuel 7 when God says, you will always be on the throne. A king in your line will always be on the throne. He has all the promises of succession, and yet he's not even on the throne. So here we're faced in verses 1 to 2 with a king who cries out in his faintness. And this is a problem. Um, it's a problem which uh, this man, Niccolo Machiavelli, would know all about. Now, I'm, I'm nervous saying this, that I've been reading Machiavelli. You always ought to be worried when somebody says they've been reading about the megalomaniac uh, Machiavelli. Um, the only thing I would say in my defense is this is my wife's copy. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, but this is a very powerful little book called The Prince, which he wrote in the early 1500s. He was uh, a medieval diplomat. He was an exile out of work. And uh, he wrote to uh, someone in the Medici family. He was looking for a job, really. But he wrote this little book saying, how can people, how can kings, how can rulers get power and stay in power? But he was modern before his time. Because in that little book, he spends a lot of time saying that 
You've got to do what's necessary in your time, in your circumstances to stay in power. Not necessarily what's right, but you've got to do what's necessary. But what's less well-known is that at the very heart of his little book, he puts his finger on something we all feel vulnerable on if we're Christians. He says that the big problem with the Christian kingdom and the Christian God is that there is a weak king at the center of it. The Christian kingdom is fundamentally unstable, he says, because there is an unstable and weak king at its very center. And a weak king breeds weak rulers and breeds weak people. And we'd have to look at verses 1 and 2 and think that perhaps he's right. I mean, Jesus Christ, the the king that we follow, well, he's in the line of this David's. We know that, Matthew 1. He's descended from David. But he also bears the family likeness. So Hebrews 5, verse 7, Jesus cried out with loud cries and tears in the days of his earthly life. Jesus Christ, the the king of the Davidic kingdom, well, he knew about being faint on the edge of the world. He could sing and pray, verses 1 to 2 of this psalm. So it looks like Machiavelli's right, that we have come to a shaky king and a shaky kingdom. And so it's no wonder that we feel more like victims than victors. Well, then in verse 2, in the second half of verse 2, we reach a turning point. It's the turning point of the psalm. It comes early, and it doesn't look like it's a turning point, but it really is. The king prays, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, when the king prays, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, when he admits that he needs help from a higher rock, it's not the ultimate sign of weakness. But it is in this psalm the ultimate guarantee of strength. Because in a moment, in the flash of an eye, we discover why his faintness is actually the very doorway to his firmness. Because we suddenly understand the one reason, the one thing that makes this king and this kingdom the safest, strongest place to be. This king has a higher king. This king has a higher king. So at the very center of the gospel, there is a king who is crying out to another king. There is a king who actually has a higher refuge, a king who has a God of refuge. It's our second point there on our sheets. This faint king, yes, he cries out, but he has a higher refuge. So verse 2 says to us, you can never judge the fortunes of this king and this kingdom and his people by looking horizontally. You can never do that with this king because unlike any other king, the king in David's line He doesn't have to look around him for alliances and for strength because he can look up. He can look up. Now, why is that admission, lead me to the rock that is higher than I? Why is that the ultimate guarantee of strength? Well, everyone cries out. Everyone looks up in danger. But no, what makes the difference here is the kind of king he looks to, the God he prays to. It's not just the fact of looking up. It's that he looks up to God's, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, the God who has always been for David a hiding place of safety, a person who is a place of refuge. So he prays there, verse 3, you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. So whether it was escaping from uh, the jealous Saul, 1 Samuel 19, escaping from Gath to the cave of Adullam, in 1 Samuel 22, whether it's hiding in the forests, whether it's hiding in a rock in the wilderness of Maon, 
a rock that he later named the Rock of Escape. Actually, his rescuer, David's rescuer, was always the Lord's. The Lord was his rock and his deliverance. That's what he prays in 2 Samuel 22. When he looks back on his life, his opening words of that prayer sum up his experience. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. In God, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. So verse 3, the Lord is and always has been David's strong tower. A strong tower, the one who not just provides protection, but in whom he's raised up so that the enemies who loom so large on the ground, well, now they're seen to scale. They're dwarfed now in the presence of this God, the Lord's. And so he prays, lead me to that higher rock. Lead me to the place, to the person of safety. Which explains the shift from uh, verse 3 to verse 4. You see in verse 4, we we suddenly start to, to hear about the tent, the place of God's presence, the tabernacle. You see, the Lord who is a rock could be found especially in Zion, the city raised on a rock, specifically at its very center, at the tent, the tabernacle of God. This tent, this place where God symbolically dwelt, well, it's a place of elevation and refuge because of the God who symbolically dwells there. He is a God of elevation and of refuge. So he prays, I long to dwell in your tent forever. May I never be without your steadying presence. And he takes us, doesn't he, to the the very bit of furniture in the tabernacle, in the tent that typifies this God. On the Ark of the Covenant, in the uh, the tabernacle, on either side were uh, the statues of two cherubim. And uh, the wings of those cherubim, well, they sent a message to God's king and God's people. By means of these two wings, God said, I wrap my protective wings around my people. I'm a covenant God who protects my covenant people, as if to say, I'm a rock, yes, but I'm also like an eagle, an eagle who spreads his wings around his people in protection. But the other thing that these wings spoke of, these wings said there is a higher throne. These wings, if you like, symbolically bore up God on his own throne. The ark was like his footstool. It was as if these wings said, there is a higher throne. There is a higher place of refuge. Your safety is ultimately in me, the God of refuge. Okay, so where where have we got to? At the end of verse 4, we discover the one condition for stability and safety in this kingdom. The Davidic king begins to move from faintness towards being firm and steady when he enters the sanctuary of this God of refuge. So the one question we need to ask about whether we're stable in this king and in this kingdom is, is the king in the sanctuary? Is the Davidic king in the sanctuary of this God of refuge? And the reason why that's so important is because of who this God is, who he is meeting. Let's come to point three. So a steadfast God is what makes a steadfast king. Now, yeah, just a a couple of points in verses 4 to verses 5. It's a hard switch to understand this movement from verse 4 to verse 5, unless we understand that this meeting between this God and his king is a strategic meeting. It's more like a summit than any other kind of meeting. You know, a summit we, uh, we attend. We attend a summit, but not in person. We attend through our representative. So decisions are made on our behalf. Our interests are protected in the person of our representative. 
Well, everything in heaven and on earth is shared between God and his king. At the very beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm 2, in the introduction, we have God, the God of heaven, handing everything in the world over to his son, um, the Davidic king. And so this meeting that we see now in Psalm 61, it's a really strategic meeting because everything in heaven and earth is shared between these two people. That's why you see in uh, verse 5, when this person makes his vows of thanksgiving and God hears them, well, his reward, it's no ordinary one because this is no ordinary person, but it's the king. Verse 5, he has been given the heritage of those who fear God's name. God has entrusted all his people, he's entrusted us into the hands of his king. In God's perspective, well, we appear before him in the person of his king. The fortunes of you and I, of God's people, well, they rise and fall with the fortunes of the king. And so when we come to verse 6, whoever's saying that, whether it's the king or it's someone else, well, we want to join in. We want to say, yes, prolong the life of the king, because we're in his hands, verse 5. But there's one other thing we need to know to understand verses 5 to 7, and that is that God has promised to David that he would make him firm by making him forever, by making him a forever kind of king. So in one of the uh, most well-known chapters of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David, I will establish your kingdom. I'll make it firm because I'll make it forever. That is, after all, uh, it's the currency of kingship. It's what Machiavelli claimed to promise to kings who took his advice. You'd have a long reign. You'll stay in power. And that's like the currency of kingship, isn't it? If uh, you ask a king, what does he want? Well, he wants years. He wants time in office. A long reign is a stable reign. And so though we didn't realize it, in verse 4 of our psalm, when the king says, I long to dwell in your tent forever, he's saying, establish my kingdom just as you've promised. Make me firm by making me forever. So in verses 4 to 8, we get about eight different words for time and lengthening time. So verse 6, prolong the days of the king, it's, it's, uh, or prolong the life of the king is a little bit weak. Literally, it's, uh, it means days, let there be days upon days of the king, years, generation upon generation, days, years, generations, heaped upon each other. Verse 7, May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Then will I ever fulfill my vows, day after day. Make my kingdom firm by making it forever, just as you promised. But aren't we still stuck with the problem with which we began, which is that big promises are made to this king and those in the kingdom? But what will make it happen Well, do you see, if we put together verse 2 and 4, and verses 5 to 7, we have the answer. This God of refuge alone, verses 2 to 4, can make this king steadfast in verses 5 and 7. Only a steadfast and safe God can do that. Only a God who is a higher refuge can underwrite, if you like, promises this big. He's epitomized by a love that never fails, promises that are fulfilled. That's why he says, the king prays, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over me. Earlier in book two, David, wandering around outside God's presence, 
He appealed to God, send your protection out, send your steadfast love and faithfulness. They were like emissaries God sent out to protect him like bodyguards. But no, here he says, no, appoint them to watch over me in your presence. Because, of course, this is God's very character. This is God himself. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. So let's see then, finally, verse 8, how far we have come. We sing and serve day upon day, or rather the king does. See how far the king has come? Crying out in desperation, and now he sings in safety. That day upon day that he sings and serves, it matches the, uh, the day upon day that the Lord God of heaven gives him. You have to be safe, he says, to serve. And now the Lord has made this king safe. He sings and he serves. So then we have uh, in this psalm the Davidic king moving from faintness to firmness when he enters the sanctuary of God. But not just any God, it's because this God is the high king of refuge. But I want us to spend a few minutes now thinking about how we as a church, how we at CCM, how we as Christians can echo this psalm, can sing it and pray it in our hearts for ourselves. And first, we're to know that we have a firm king from this psalm. You see, we're joined to a king not only who knew what it was to be faint, as we do, and we follow his pattern, but a king who is now firm. So you see, as soon as we say, well, we know fragility, we know faintness, we could list that, couldn't we? Well, this psalm says back to us, yes, but the king that you follow, the king to whom you're now joined by faith, well, he is now firm. He is firm in a way that he it was only ever prophetically firm here. So remember, we, uh, we saw at the end of verse 4, the condition of stability in this kingdom is, is the king in the sanctuary of God? Has he entered the sanctuary of this high God of refuge? Well, the book of Hebrews that says that uh, this king in the days of his earthly life, Jesus Christ, cried out with loud cries and tears. Well, he has now entered the true sanctuary the heavenly presence of God the Father. And there he's been enthroned, and he remains forever. There will never be another succession crisis in this kingdom. So the firmness David prophesies in verses 5 to 7, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We have a firm king, not a, not a, stead, not a uh, shaky one. But secondly, we're to know not only that we have a firm king, but that in him because we're joined to him by faith, by God's Spirit, we too are now firm. So our weak king has turned out to be actually our firm king because of his reverence, crying out with loud cries and tears. Well, he's been heard, and he's been made firm and steady. He's been given all the the promises of the kingdom. His throne has been made secure. And so there's a sense in which We don't just look forward to us being firm, but there's a sense in which we are already in his presence, and so we are already firm with him. I read this week um, uh, one of the letters that uh, the great Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote to uh, a husband and wife, and uh, this man's wife was suffering from severe illness and also a form of what they call then spiritual depression. 
In other words, she knew what it was to be faint and fragile, to feel very far from the presence of God. And Rutherford uh, wrote these words. For there be many Christians most like unto young sailors who think the shore and the whole land doth move when the ship and they themselves are moved. Just so not a few do imagine that God moveth and saileth and changeth places because their giddy souls are under sail and subject to alteration, to ebbing and flowing. But the foundation of the Lord abideth sure. You see, he's saying, don't misread your shakiness. That doesn't mean you're in a shaky kingdom. And this psalm teaches us, if you like, to preach against our experience of being fragile and faint. The condition of our safety is whether our king, the one in whom we come before the very presence of God, is secure, and he is in the sanctuary. So in Christ, we, in a sense, even now, have all the security of heaven, even though on earth we feel all the faintness that we all know. And then thirdly, in our fragility, in our fragility, we're to take refuge in this God through Christ. So as soon as uh, the king prayed at the end of verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, we realized that safety was always located outside ourselves. To be safe and be be secure was not to look in, but ultimately to look up. That is, if you like, the message that comes again and again in this book two of the Psalms, from Psalm 42 onwards. This God is chiefly a God of refuge. And this Psalm puts it in lights. This kingdom is firm, and you are firm. You can be firm because of this God, who is a God of refuge. So there'll be people here facing all kinds of situations where We have no mastery. We've got no control of it. We feel like we're victims of circumstances. We're not in control. And yet this psalm encourages us to look up, to look up to the king who cries out to the higher king. For his God is also our God. Psalm 62 will will break out, if you like, with with that song. So verse 8 of Psalm 62, the king will turn to the people and say, trust in him at all times. This God of refuge is our God of refuge. It's the peculiar privilege of Christian people to look up to this God. Well, finally, in Christ, we can sing and serve in safety. You have to be safe. You have to know that you're safe if you're going to serve. It's the great temptation, isn't it, to wait until faintness and weakness and difficulty passes before we feel secure enough, safe again, to sing to God, to pray to God, to serve him. And yet we're told here that in Christ, the king who is now made firm, we can sing and serve with him, in him, in safety. Well, let's pray now that uh, in our fragility, uh, we know what it is to be firm. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that uh, you are the God of refuge to whom your Son, the Lord Jesus, cried out and you rescued him from every enemy. We praise you that in him we have come into a secure inheritance, a firm kingdom. We thank you that it's unshakable and so that you've made us, you've made your church unshakable. We pray that we would know all the comfort and the strength of that. 
in the midst of our fragility, our weakness and faintness. Please, Father, though we are weak, would you um, make us strong? In Jesus' name, amen.